saying. The reason that I think that's important and that that be our sort of bent whenever we go into the text is because sometimes things in Scripture are, are a little bit weird, uh, sometimes a little bit strange and confusing, or sometimes a story pops in there that seems to have nothing to do with everything that's around it. And so it's only by that kind of investigation into the text of what it really means and what the author is, is using this to say to us uh, can really be helpful. And I think particularly this comes up in, as I mentioned last week in you know, your quiet times and things like that, you sit down in the morning, you open up the word, and sometimes the text is just not, doesn't just you know, grip you the way you wish it would, in the way particular passages do. And so when you start to pause and really consider why this text is here, what the surrounding context is about and, and why that's important, that then the text starts to make a little bit more sense. And what the author is doing is really trying to grip you and motivate you towards something. And so uh, we saw, I think, a little bit of this last week. We've been in a, a string of passages through Second Kings, starting really in about chapter 4, where we just get this successive telling of miracles that Elisha does. And they're obviously miraculous in that, you know, he causes an axe head to float, or he raises a dead uh, woman's dead son, and uh, and things like this, and obviously those are incredible miracles, but it does raise the question as we back up just a little bit from the text, what is the author actually doing with all of these miracles? And I think some of this is going to become even a little bit more uh, evident tonight as we look at some particular things that have happened in the book of Second Kings. But just as a review of what we talked about last week, remember Elisha comes with the first miracle um, there in chapter 6 and causes an axe head to float on the water. And it's it seems a very strange story, and a lot of people don't really know what to do with it, but it falls in the midst of all of these miracles that Elisha is doing. And then when you consider the value of an axe head, the fact that it's borrowed, and the fact that the, the person using the axe head is one of the sons of the prophets in the midst of a wicked and twisted northern kingdom of Israel, here is this group of Godly men who are prophets under Elisha's ministry that are growing. And so God, in the midst of wickedness, picture maybe in modern times North Korea, in the midst of that kind of wickedness, God is raising up this school of prophets, of godly people, who have now grown so much that they have to build basically a new kind of monastery, if you will, for them to live and in the midst of that, one of these godly men loses an axe head, which could throw him into poverty and slavery from the one he borrowed it from. And in the midst of that, Elisha redeems him and basically buys back his freedom in some sense. Um, following that, we get another episode of these Syrian soldiers who are, are sent to find Elisha because um, they are concerned that Elisha knows or that there is a, a spy or a mole in their camp. Once the king finds out that, no, it's actually Elisha who, is, who knows the thoughts of the king inside his bedroom, he goes to seek him to kill him. And there again, Elisha demonstrates his power over the Gentile kings, not by killing them or telling the king that he's around to kill them. He actually blinds them but then opens their eyes to see the truth of the kingdom when he provides a banquet for them and sends them back on their way. And this seems to be a way of reversing war and turning it to peace. And then finally, we have the story of 
Elisha restoring uh, sight to the blind, and, and well, we, we consider all of these together, that in the midst of Elisha's ministry, he restores sight to the blind, he cures the leper, he heals the sick, he raises the dead to life, he brings good news to the destitute, and what we start to see then, what becomes even more evident, is that Elisha's ministry very much, or probably should say Jesus's ministry, very much parallels Elisha's ministry. And this is made explicitly clear in the Gospel of Matthew when John the Baptist is locked away in prison and he sends his disciples because he's confused. He's, he's uh, really, his faith is being challenged in the midst of persecution. And that's obvious because he begins to doubt who Jesus actually is. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask, uh, is it you that we're looking for or should we look for another? Should we expect another and Jesus answers them with the miracles of Elisha that he is also doing. And so John the Baptist, as we know, is playing the role of Elijah. And Elisha, who comes to give deliverance to God's people, is uh, Jesus is playing the role of Elisha. And so there, there, this whole run of miracles that is evident in 2 Kings 4 to, really, we're going to see another one here at the beginning of 8 but four to seven in particular, that run of miracles is demonstrating that this kingdom that's locked away and under the thumb of a wicked king cannot be locked away from God. God will get to his people and he's going to use a prophet instead of the king to do that. And as it happens, all of the people's hearts are beginning to turn towards Elisha. They recognize him as the one in in authority. In fact, even the king to some degree is beginning to see that. And we're going to see that, I think, a little bit uh, tonight, but it is unfortunately too late. What we're going to talk about tonight, and we're going to see by the end of chapter 8, is that judgment on the house of Omri. Remember, Omri is one of the most prolific kings in the northern kingdom. Just as a reminder, you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, 10 tribes go up there. They're considered Israel. And then the southern kingdom is considered Judah. It's Judah and Benjamin. In Judah is, the, is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, where people are going to worship. And the northern kingdom, for the most part, is continued in wickedness and has kind of become the North Korea of the, of the group, where they're really locked down. There is no worship outside the king and uh, outside the king's control, particularly not traveling to the southern kingdom to go to the temple of worship. So they've locked people away from following the Lord. And what has been pronounced on that northern kingdom is that God is going to judge them and he's going to overturn the house of Ahab, one of Omri's sons. And But we've been here for several chapters and this hasn't happened yet. So uh, remember the prophecy of Ahijah all the way back in 1 Kings 14, 15, it says this, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. So here's a prophecy coming from Ahijah to the house of Omri that it's going to be overturned eventually and that the the throne is going to be done away with because they have been wicked. They provoked the Lord to anger. So he's going to take it away from that line and he's going to give it to another group of people. 
And even though we've had this prophecy for some time, we've actually had this prophecy since 1415. Omri and his lineage have held the throne since 1 Kings 16.23. So there's been literally, we've been here for some time waiting for this whole thing to overturn. And if you've been, if you want God's justice to happen in the snap of a finger, well, it doesn't quite work that way. And it, it seems like he's taking a lot longer than maybe we think he should. If you prophesy, you send a prophet to tell the king, hey, look, this whole thing, you've made the Lord really angry. And he's going to overturn the house. Well, how long is it going to take him? I mean, if it's not in the life of Omri, if it's not in the life of Ahab, whose life is it going to be in the midst of? And so... We also saw that um, there's Elijah's prophecy at, at toward the end of 1 Kings, chapter 21, 21 to 24, where he says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab, it's one of Omri's sons, every male, bond, or free in Israel, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashah, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which uh, you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and Jezebel the Lord, all, uh, and, to, and of Jezebel the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So there is this prophecy even of Ahab's house that he that it's going to be overturned, but. All of a sudden, we're here now in 2 Kings, and the second son of Ahab is on the throne now. Like in Elisha's ministry, Ahab's son is still on the throne. In fact, his first son died shortly after taking the throne, and now his second son is reigning. Where is really this justice that we've been waiting for um, to, to come? And so, um, oh, I, sorry, I, I didn't get that um, uh, slide there. But... Elijah announced this destruction of the house of Ahab and that it would happen during one of Ahab's sons. Um, and it, it, it's obviously abundantly clear that in First and Second Kings that we've already seen that God is faithful to his word. He promises things and he delivers through the mouths of his prophets. And so if Elijah said it's going to be overturned, then why hasn't it been overturned yet? It's got to be at least one of the prevailing questions that we've seen. There's been famine, there's been war, there's been all kinds of things that have taken place, and yet still no real justice has, been, has happened for his people, no real relief. And what we also saw was that in 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29, uh, Ahab actually had a bout with repentance. It just kind of struck him. Look at this. It says, And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put, put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. So we should expect since he has his second son on the throne, that it's coming soon, right? If the Lord is true to his word. And I think we're going to see that here tonight. Now, we get to chapter 8. We've just had this run of miracles from Elisha. And we get to chapter 8 where this judgment is brewing and can't surely be delayed much longer. And we have this little story about a Shunammite woman 
Remember the Shunammite woman? He gave her a son, then her son died, then he revived the son. Elisha has been really particular about this Shunammite woman. And the reason is because she's been a big funder of his ministry. She has been very protective of Elisha, and she's provided him safe habitat whenever he's been traveling. She built him a garage apartment out back, and he's come to stay several times. And he's thought to himself, what on earth have I done to deserve this from you? What can I do for you? She's obviously refused his service at one point uh, in, in uh, the process, and he gave her a son anyway. The son died, he revived the son, and now we get uh, the closure on this story of the Shunammite woman as the famine is about to hit her land, and Elisha comes to her out of concern and warns her ahead of time so that she may escape the famine. All right, so let's look at 2 Kings 8, 1 to 6. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of, uh, of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned to, from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son had, uh, he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed an official, uh, she told him, so the king appointed an official for her, saying, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Okay, so, all right. The next few passages from here are going to be really be the, the early brimmings of judgment to fall on the house of Ahab. So what in the world is this story doing here at the beginning of all that? Why do we go back to the Shunammite woman? In fact, it even, it, there's, there's even more complexities and oddities to this story when you stop to really think about it. First, Remember that a few chapters ago, back in chapter 4, she declined Elijah's help, Elisha's help. And um, she, so, so here, she actually needs it. Why did she decline Elisha's help? Well, if you look back in chapter 4, verse 13, it's precisely because she dwells among her own people, right? She said to him, say, uh, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble from us. What is to be done for you? Would, you? would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. So basically, my life is really good. I, 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 there's nothing that I'm in need of. She's quite wealthy, it seems, though she's barren and she has no children at the time. She's quite wealthy because she's obviously provided uh, and afforded a prophet, not only paid part of his ministry, but also afforded him a place to live. And she's refused his service. I have everything I need. I dwell among my own people. What do we find in this passage? 
She's gone away and she has been away uh, avoiding the famine for seven years and she's come back to find that she has no more dwelling place among her people. She's an exile, uh, essentially. And so now she requires Elisha's help. But this also raises a question. Why, why would the author put this here? Well, it's, it's a particular, a peculiar interest too because who do you notice in the story that shouldn't be there? You notice anybody in the story that really shouldn't be there? is this little servant of Elisha named Gehazi. You see him there? Now, what's he doing there? Because in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, he's banished with leprosy, right? Remember, Naaman comes to... uh, Let me bring that up. Naaman comes... He's a Gentile uh, king from far away. He comes... uh, Or a commander of an army. He comes from far away, and he comes into the land, and he seeks a, a restoring of his... Uh, flesh that has leprosy. And he eventually finds his way to Elisha. Elisha tells him to go down in the river and dip seven times. He has to be convinced to do so. And he finally does. And he comes up with his skin as smooth as a baby's bottom. Literally, it says that pretty much. And so he goes to Elisha and he says, hey, let me pay you whatever you want. I'll pay you for this. And Elisha refuses all forms of payment. And so he eventually, reluctantly, gets in his chariot and he wheels away. Well, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, who is, turns out, is greedy inwardly, takes off after him and catches up to him down the road and contrives some cockamamie story where he needs some money and some clothing. And he comes back wearing a gold chain and plenty of new clothes and tons of money. And Elisha's like, where you been? You know, And so condemns him in the end with the leprosy of Elisha. And he is banished. He's gone. Well, what's he doing here in chapter eight if he's gone? Well, he hasn't come back. What we realize is that this story is not told chronologically, right? The story is not told chronologically, which gives you even more of an indication that this is here on purpose, right? That Gehazi's made it back into the story, so the author wants this story placed here for a particular reason, which is really odd, because why would it be placed here? It seems like it doesn't belong. Well, let's keep going. What's interesting about this story is that the king who is probably Jehoram. Oh, back up, by the way. Let me just make a note on that. That um, the healing of Naaman and also Ben-Hadad, who we're going to read about in just a minute or later, who has two invasions into Israel, probably takes place during Joram's tenure. And if you look on the back of your, or not on the back, but on the last page, the last uh, front page of your packet there, You'll have Joram in the north there, uh, 852 to 841. So um, that probably takes place, the the healing of Naaman and Ben-Hadad's invasions probably take place there at the end of Joram's tenure, So, which is what we're reading about now at the end of his tenure. So um, that this whole event with the Shunammite lady takes place well before that. Um, So King Joram in this story has a change of heart. And the reason that we know that is because before he is confronted many times and kings before him are confronted many times by a word from the prophet and by, uh, by, by, by proclamation or by 
uh, you know, appeal from the people or various other kinds of things. And the kings never respond in righteousness, do they? Ever. They, they never really, even though sometimes they consult Elijah or Elisha, they never listen to their consultation. They never heed their words. There's the story where the three kings go, uh, king from Israel, king from Judah, and, and uh, king from Edom go into um, a foreign land. They try to, you know, get the, whip the foreign king back into shape, uh, the Ammonites, I think it is. And, um, and they go in there and they seek word from the prophet. And he tells them, look, this is what's going to happen. You can trust the Lord. And then they get in there. Those things start to happen. And all of a sudden, the foreign army sacrifices the king's child. And they're like, oh, no. And they're scared and they run. They don't believe the word from the prophet. There's several times throughout this. We've seen time and time again, they don't believe the word from the prophet They don't do anything that the prophet says. And more importantly, the king doesn't mete out justice. That's his role. That's what he's supposed to do. He's the the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God, the king is. He is supposed to institute God's justice in the world around him. So what that means is, and we know this is specifically true from the law, from the first five books of the Bible. The king is supposed to write out the law of God every year. He's supposed to have it on his own heart, read it continually. He's supposed to be the one who is advocating most most poignantly for the law to be read amongst his people and for the people to obey it and follow it and adhere to it. And here the king is lost in, in, in wickedness for as far back as, you know, early in 1 Kings. And yet, here we have this sort of interesting turn where Jehoram now begins to listen to the Shunammite woman's case and actually makes a wise biblical decision. A decision that's very indicative of the kingdom of God. The, the laws of the kingdom of God, as if he's governing righteously. We get this brief little glimpse of it. Remember back in uh, 6, 24 to 31, there was a scene where two uh, women are debating, and afterward, Ben-Hadad, a king of uh, Syria, let's see, in 6, 24 to 31, mustered his entire army and went and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung, uh, for, for, uh, of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O King. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you from the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, what's your trouble? And so the woman goes in to tell him that I made a deal with this woman that today we would, we would kill my son and we would eat him. And then tomorrow we would kill her son and eat, and eat him. Horrible story. But at the end of all that, the king is left to nothing. He's like, hey, the Lord can't help you, then I can't help you. So the king is not hearing this woman's story, as terrible as it is. He's certainly not instituting any kind of justice or good judgment on behalf of the kingdom as the leader of God's kingdom. And yet here, the Shunammite woman comes in and he is actually able to mead out 
divine judgment on her behalf. And what does he do? He doesn't just restore her land. What does he give to her? All seven years that she's been away, all the produce of her land, which was during the midst of a famine, so it probably wasn't much. But still, you have a country that is recovering from famine, which means the storehouses aren't full. And in spite of that, we find a king asking Gehazi, tell me what all Elisha has done. And then actually meeting out God's justice to this woman. But what we find out is it's too little, too late. That's why the story's here. Go ahead. King of the North. They're both named Joram. Is that what you're pointing at? It depends on what translation you're using. ESV, sometimes they're both called Joram. Sometimes they're both called Jehoram. And sometimes one's called Joram and one's called Jehoram to separate the two. Yeah. Yes. Very confusing. It doesn't get any easier. This happens quite frequently, actually, in Israel and north and south, where it's like, wait, who's going where? I don't know who's on first here. Um, And yes, that's a problem here. But uh, it's Joram in the north, the, the Joram in the north that we're talking about. And it seems as though he has a change of heart, but judgment is going to come anyway because it has been prophesied that it is going to happen in the days of, uh, of Ahab's sons. And so it will. So how does it come about? Well, Ben-Hadad of Syria is sick. And Elisha is instructed to go to Damascus and anoint a successor as Elijah had been commissioned to do it at Horeb. And so Hazael is one of the king's aides, is one of Ben-Hadad's aides in, uh, in Syria. And so he is to become king. But listen to how it happens. It is quite disturbing. So 2 Kings uh, 8, 7, that'll be on the next page here, 7 to 15. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told to him that the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took, took a present with him, all, all, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads, When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Uh, And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set fire to their fortresses, set fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha. And came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? 
And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But then he left out that next part. (laughs) But the next day he took a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. All right. So um, now Elisha obviously goes and he says, you know, the king isn't going to die, obviously, because of the present sickness. But he is going to die of something else. And Hazael is going to rule in his place. And it's obvious that Hazael, when he hears this, kind of gets the power thirst in his brain, obviously, and sort of pushes him to the action of just taking the king's life on the way. And um, conveniently leaves out the part about the fact that he's going to smother him in his sleep. And that he's going to reign in his stead. And probably, to be honest, probably wisely leaves that part out because he would no doubt be killed if he had said anything. So Hazael then takes the throne and he's actually going to reign for 40 years. Now, I want you to remember Hazael's role in all this. Hazael is one that is told, is, is, is mentioned, is one of the three instruments of vengeance against Ahab's house that God tells Elijah when he meets with Elijah at Mount Sinai. Remember, Elijah travels for 40 days down to Mount Sinai. The whole book of 1 Kings and, and really parts of, of 2 Kings are doing this sort of reversal of the, of the Exodus. Remember, the Exodus is a 40-year 40 40 journey in the wilderness that, uh, that ends up in them going into the Promised Land and not throwing out all of their enemies. And then those enemies actually end up bringing about the wickedness inside the nation of Israel, right? Well, in the Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then he travels down to Sinai, and it takes him 40 days to get down there, right? He's re-exodusing all the way back down to uh, Sinai, where he meets with the Lord, and the Lord tells him, this is how justice is going to come, and he, he gives him three instruments of his wrath, and that one of them is Hazael, the next one is Jehu, which we're going to read about in subsequent weeks, uh, coming up in really the next chapter. And then uh, Elisha is another instrument of vengeance against the house of Ahab. So we see this in 1 Kings 19, 15 to 17. And, he, and the Lord said to him, that is Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of uh, Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And so as you read that, here, there's a couple of things. So first we want to remember Hazael is, one, is the first little, well, I guess technically Elisha is, but really Hazael is that first sign that judgment is coming on the house of Israel. So that story we hear about this sort of proclivity on the king's part to say the famine's over, God is blessing us. I want to hear this person's case. I want to hear about Elisha. I want to restore maybe kingdom fidelity. That's just a blip on the radar. Judgment is coming anyway. And key to understanding that is the fact that Hazael is appointed and Elisha's the one to do it. So now we have two people in place that were promised to us all the way back at the end of 1 Kings to Elijah. All right, And what we see in Elisha's ministry is that as he comes into the land, he starts acting out a reversal of Joshua. 
So just like Moses, lead, like Elijah's, Elijah playing the Moses role, leads the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, then Joshua moves into the land and tries to drive out all the enemies. Here, Elisha is the one actually doing that. He's moving into the land and he reverses the curses of Joshua in Jericho. He begins to uh, institute the kingdom of God in the hearts of the people. And he even starts to win some people to his side. His people, his sons of the prophets are growing under his ministry. The, the people are seeking out Elisha for his power and all the things that the Lord are doing for him. And they're ignoring the king altogether. The king is actually knowing that Elisha is more powerful than the king ever could be. And so all of these ha- things are happening under Elisha's ministry. And here's the final tipping point that's coming in the next few chapters where all of the pieces are going to fall into place, where Ahab's house is going to be torn down. But as you read all this, you say, it, he says, look, anyone that escapes Hazael's sword, Jehu's going to put to death. Anyone that escapes Jehu's sword, Elisha is going to put to death. And what it brings to mind is Elisha's ministry is going to be one of a sword coming in and cutting off people's heads and, and, and running them through and all of these kinds of really gory graphic scenes that the other two are going to do. But that's not what we see at all. In fact, Elisha comes in, and he's meek, and he's mild. He heals the sick. He cures the leper. The lame walk. The blind are restored to sight. The dead are raised. Well, that's not a ministry of the sword at all, it doesn't seem like. And so, what is it that we're to expect of Elisha's ministry if it's to be one of judgment? Well, it is one of judgment, but it's a different kind of judgment than probably you think. And in fact, this is often the way the judgment of God actually works. See, Elisha's ministry, there it is. Elisha's ministry is one of destabilization. Did it jump before and you corrected it? Okay, because I was about to trip out. (laughs) Why it jumped too and then it corrected itself. I'm like, what is going on? So Elisha's ministry is a force of destabilization. And it's precisely the kind of judgment that Yahweh describes him to have. So what does he do in the northern kingdom? Here the northern kingdom is put under the thumb of the king. They're trapped in wickedness. And what does Elisha do? He comes in and he raises the dead and he cures the leper and he provides food for the hungry. And he, he, he does all of these kind of miraculous works. And what does that do but shift the allegiance of the people in the nation towards the Lord? That's the kind of judgment that he's bringing upon the house of Ahab initially, is that he's demonstrating, you think you have power. You think you can control who is my people and who is not. You think you can, dem- uh, you can determine where they are to worship, but you can't. I'm going to bring in Elisha, and he's going to have a ministry far more powerful than you could ever imagine. And he's going to win. He's going to, I guess you say, draw more flies with honey, right? Isn't that the, is that the right expression? Did I use that right? Okay, yeah. Draw more flies with honey than with, you know, something bitter. I don't remember the rest of it. Anyway, (laughs) either here or there. (laughs) But that's the idea. His ministry is coming in to destabilize the nation and not be a wicked nation, but actually begin to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. And so what is he doing? But in this nation of Israelites, 
He's not cutting them in two, but he's dividing sons from fathers and daughters from mothers and princes from prophets. Now, this last part of the chapter, we turn our attention to the southern kingdom. And before we get to the rest of the fall of Ahab's house and, and all of the judgment that's beginning to come, we, we look at the southern kingdom and you got to think, well, why is he now talking about the southern kingdom? Well, there's a really big reason. You're going to see some of these details spread throughout this passage. Look at 2 Kings 8, 16 to 29. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, that's the north, when Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, that's the south, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, they're, they're titled differently here so that you can keep them separate, but he's the king of the south. He also goes by Joram in some translations. He's the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and the house of Ahab, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Hold on to that. That's really important. He walked in the exact way of Ahab. And what did he do? He had one of Ahab's daughters for his wife. Why would he do that? Well, that's an alliance is what we call that. Okay, let's keep going. He did, uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over Zair with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? Don't you think that Edom, who was put under the control of Judah in Sol David and Solomon's reign, is now revolting? Well, that's a big deal for the kingdom of God, considering it's to spread, that it's shrinking. But then what happens? Well, then Libna revolted, which that's over in the Philistine area. You're going to see a map here in just a second. At the same time, now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, that's the north, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for one year. Hold on to that. His mother's name was Ataliah, and she, she was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Wow, you know, southern kings and these northern kings' daughters, they tend to be connected. That should be of note to us. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, and at Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram, and King, and king Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, 
what we're seeing in this, the end of this chapter is that Judah is virtually indistinguishable from the northern kingdom. Well, they're associated in every way. The kings are marrying the daughters of the northern kings. Even as Jackson pointed out, their names are virtually the same. I think that's intentional that these two names are very similar because it's drawing, it's underscoring that same point. Judah's just like the north. But Judah's not going to necessarily face the exact same fate. Why? Because of David. That's why. Because, again, we see God is faithful to his promise. He's made a promise to David that he's going to provide a lamp to his sons, and he doesn't aim to go back on that promise, right? So here is the south behaving just like the north. They're virtually indistinguishable from one another. In fact, during Joram's reign, he loses both Edom and Libna, which cuts into a huge portion of Judah. Here's the map, tiny for you here in the studio audience. Um, but so here's Israel up north. Here's Judah down here in the south. Here's Philistia. And this is Libna right here. It's part of Judah, right, for the time being, but it's about to be recaptured by the Philistines. So it's going to become Philistine territory. And then Edom down here, which was a property of Judah or a, uh, a, you know, a vassal to Judah, they are now revolting from Judah and they're becoming their own nation and they're setting up their own king. And so not only do we see that the sin of the southern kings is indistinguishable, but what happens to the kingdom of God as it has been established under David and Solomon, but it begins to shrink after it's already been divided, right? And everybody is in... Uh, pattern of wickedness. But then we also see Ahaziah of Judah. He begins to reign in the 12th year of Joram of Israel. Look at 825 here. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. 12th year of the northern king, Ahaziah begins to reign. But then we see in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Joram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for how many years? How many? No, look, look at 3-1. 12 years. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Jehoram reigned for 12 years. Then up here, uh, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, began to reign in the 12th year of Joram, that same king. What does that mean? This is his last year on the throne, right? That's it. This is the end. Okay, this is the last year. Look at 826. Ahaziah, okay, go back to Ahaziah now, was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, over, over, or he reigned one year over Jerusalem. What does that mean? North, south, both kings dead. This is the year. So the king is the, the author of Second Kings is telling us if we're tracking down all the passages and going back and forth and we remember all the details that he's given to us, he's telling us the end is coming this year. Right? He's going to reign one year. He's taking over in the 12th year of the reign of the other king. Both kings are going to die this year. So you know that going in already. Judgment of Yahweh is coming. This is the year that it's going to happen. And it's going to happen in one of the sons of Ahab's 
time. Questions? Wow, either it's totally confusing or super clear. Y'all already knew all that. <laughs> either one, I guess. <laughs> Michael, I got lost on looking at your your outline of the kings, and I see Joram, and I see Jehu, but I don't see the other two, Haziel and Elijah. Hazael is um, is in Syria, so he's neither northern king or southern king. He's in Syria. I didn't hear who the other one was. You said Elijah. Didn't you say the three? Yahweh mentions the three as instruments of vengeance. Yeah, Elisha being the prophet. The prophet. Okay, yeah, yeah. got, got yeah, yeah. it. Got it. Yeah. So you have jo- Joram, Jehoram. And uh, Elisha, uh, who are all there on that same line, they're kind of in the uh, reign at the same time. And sometimes I have to kind of pay attention to different authors as I as I, you know, grab things from different uh, texts. Some use Joram, some use Jehoram, and you know, it's so it can get really confusing. And sometimes the biblical authors, chronicles, will call them something a little different than kings will, and so you kind of have to. It's it's a hard thing to keep track of. Go ahead, Heather. Oh, here, let me give you a microphone because otherwise they're not going to be able to hear you at home. Aside from the judgment that was prophesied, that was clearly part of God's plan, why would Elisha be involved in an anointing of a foreign king? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because do you notice that, that when Hazel comes to him, he calls him the father of Ben-Hadad, your son is sick. And so th- this is, I'm, I meant to come back to this and I'm glad you asked that question because it's obvious that this is the extent of Elisha's ministry. Everybody has seen, for whatever reason, something's going on with Elisha because he is able to prophesy when it's going to famine, when famine's going to come. He knows when it's going to end. He's able to raise the dead, cure lepers. He's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And obviously the Lord is working through him. And so it's evident from everybody that Elisha is in control of this whole thing. And so when he comes to get a blessing from anybody, when he's seeking out who, who is going to tell me whether this is going to end, it's Elisha that he's going to. It's nobody else because they understand that it's a, through Elisha that even the Lord is working. outside the boundaries of Israel. And yes. Yeah. Even the Gentiles. Because remember, even Naaman. Comes to uh, comes to the king. They know they hear he hears that there is healing because that little slave girl tell tells uh, tells her tells her master who is the wife of Naaman to go to go to Israel because Elisha will take care of you, and you know and that so word has spread clearly around that Elisha is the one to go to and everybody submits to well everybody submits to him quote unquote. Uh, we even see that, I think, in, in the king going, asking Gehazi, what's going on with Elisha? Tell me all the stories of Elisha. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Parallel, she said it parallels uh, Jesus going to the Gentiles. And, yep, absolutely. Yeah. 
Other questions? So the one thing, point to underscore just real quick before we close is um, I think often, you know, we think of uh, the judgment of God to always be wrathful vengeance and destruction. And there's no doubt that is there. But the people that are his, that are redeemed, don't fear judgment. For them, the day of the Lord is a good day. The day of the Lord is a day to look forward to and always has been. Even the prophets, Habakkuk and so on, the, the, the day of the Lord coming is a joyful day for those that are his. The problem in the Old Testament is they see the day of the Lord and the way it's described is the prophets underscore this several times that you think you're his and you think you're going to look forward to the day of the Lord but you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of it. But, but the ones that are in Christ, what we see is that the day of the Lord is that double-edged sword, certainly described in Revelation, oh, is, you know, catastrophic for the world, but not for his children. For his children, it's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of feasting. It's a day of celebration that the Lord has returned. So, I think all of this even underscores that same kind of idea that's going to that's going to reach its tentacles all the way through the New Testament, where we see in Jesus's ministry as he comes to do exactly what Elisha is doing or similar, and that that inevitably will end in a return of Christ, where he is the judge, and for those who are with him, it's a day of celebration and feasting. Right. So let's pray, Heavenly Father. We are so grateful to be able to read your word and to talk about it and discuss it, to see the finer points of the text. And I, I pray that uh, those become evident to us, but also that you use those as a, a means of growth for us as we uh, grow to understand more of who you are in, in, and as you've revealed yourself to be in your word. And, and, and as we grow in more appreciation of the word that you have put down in front of us and preserved throughout the years, that you have obviously knit together in a compelling way to draw us in to not only the, the narratives that take place here, but the, the points that you're driving home to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give to all of us the gift of repentance and um, that as we identify sin in our own life, that we would not hesitate to come before you and confess those knowing that it is only in you that we find redemption and salvation. And I pray that all of us on that day when Christ returns would be found um, in a celebratory mood, um, longing for and happy to see the return of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you guys at online. See you later.